Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Cloda Daly and Mary Heavey, who are both from the Northside um, the Community Law and Mediation, um, which is a local community uh, legal, free legal aid center, and they can explain themselves what it is exactly. Um, but we're going to talk today about um, housing, about environmental justice, about poverty, and how people can achieve their rights, and what is the importance of a human right to housing. Um, and we also have, as listeners would be aware, there's ongoing at the moment a consultation being held by the Housing Commission, and we are encouraging people to put a submission into that, calling for a um, and asking people to make a submission that would call for a referendum to be held on the right to housing, to insert the right to housing in the Constitution. And of course, the uh, shenanigans with Robert Troy and all that show even more than ever why we need um, housing as a human right in this country. Um, Claude, listen, thanks so much for and uh, Mary for coming on the podcast. Maybe Claude, to go to you first, just maybe explain briefly what is um, the Community Law and Mediation Centre? What do you do? Uh, yeah, for sure. So um, Community Law and Mediation uh, is an independent community law centre and we provide free legal advice, advocacy, mediation and education services. So we were established in Kulak in 1975, but we opened a second law centre then in Limerick in 2012, so 10 years ago. And today we assist more than 4,000 people annually. And then in 2021, we opened the Centre for Environmental Justice. So this is the first of its kind in Ireland. And the centre works to ensure that climate change and other environmental harms don't disproportionately affect those who have contributed least to the problem and that the state's response to environmental issues address inequality and protect the rights of present and future generations. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And I know it's something that uh, we've talked before about and, and you have been working on is that whole question of in this transition in terms of you know addressing climate change and the changes that are needed, how do, can we ensure that it is what is called a just transition? And we see that word or that phrase bandied around and what does it actually mean um, in reality? And maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, environmental justice. What does that mean and how is that relevant to, you know, communities that you are working with um, in terms of communities in poverty, disadvantage, vulnerability? Um, and how does that work? Because in some ways it seems sort of abstract. Yeah, so environmental issues are often placed in a separate category to other issues like, you know, income inequality or housing or gender and racial justice. Um, but really, we can't kind of separate those issues anymore. And um, they're very, very inherently and deeply interconnected. Um, so environmental justice, I suppose, seeks to ensure that any response to climate change um, takes all of those intersectional issues into account and looks to protect communities who are at the forefront um, of environmental harms um, and especially communities who've been, I suppose, traditionally not part of the conversation on environmental change in Ireland and making sure that those voices are being um, appropriately heard, I think, as well. Um, so, yeah, like one, one issue that I think makes these links really, really clear is the current energy poverty crisis. Mm. Um, 
And like at the moment, um, a third, almost a third of the population are living in energy in, in energy poverty, which is really, really shocking. Yeah. Um, that figure might actually increase to 40% this winter if the government doesn't, you know, take steps towards addressing that. But energy poverty is caused by a couple of issues in Ireland. So um, one of those is our reliance on fossil fuels. Um, so, and the second is our housing crisis as well. Yeah. So um, if we were to think about like our reliance on fossil fuels and how that's generating energy poverty, um, the price of gas in Europe has increased by more than 170% in the EU since the beginning of last year. And Ireland is still reliant on oil and gas for 80% of our energies and gas provides 50% of our electricity generation as well. So we are particularly vulnerable to energy price hikes. Yeah. Um, but fossil fuels, as we know as well, are also the biggest contributor to climate change globally. So if we are to protect communities from future price hikes and from the worst impacts of the climate crisis, we obviously need to really, really accelerate the transition. Um, one way of doing that might be by nationalizing our energy system, which France has done recently. Um, and this would allow us to make sure that people's energy needs are met because nobody in Ireland should have to choose between eating and heating. Um, and no one should have to endure electricity blackouts, especially as energy companies are recording record-breaking profits. Um, so, and the, the other um, factor that I mentioned is, you know, that the housing crisis is also generating energy poverty. So, you know, we know, for example, that um, almost half of our housing stock is energy inefficient. Yeah. Yeah. But I think if we're to go, um, if we're to really address the root cause of energy poverty, we need to go beyond retrofit alone. And um, retrofit is a really, really essential part of this. But the lack of um, kind of social and uh, culturally appropriate and just affordable housing in Ireland is also creating and reinforcing energy poverty because it's really impacting where people can afford to live and also the quality of homes that people can afford to live yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It's, there's a lot there. I'm struck as well by um, <laughs> there's a number of things. In terms of, I suppose, cases, because you work, you know, with people directly in terms of cases that are coming to you and examples of that kind of how the energy crisis is hitting, um, you know, low income households. And I suppose that intersection, as you say, with housing crisis, with the housing crisis. Well, could you give maybe some examples of that, of sort of cases you'd be dealing with in relation to that? Yeah, Rory, I might jump in on that. Yeah, absolutely, um, Mary, yeah. So Community Law Mediation, we offer free weekly legal advice clinics and we also offer monthly clinics um, focusing on the issue of environmental justice. And really, it's in those clinics that we're seeing on the ground the effect that this housing crisis is having on people and specifically in the context of the energy poverty that, that, that our, the communities we're working with are experiencing. So, for example, we've had numerous local authority tenants and tenants of approved housing bodies come into our clinics really experiencing on the ground energy poverty with real concerns 
as to how they are actually going to be able to meet their energy costs. Mm. And for those particular tenants, that the situation is compounded by the fact that they don't have control over who their energy provider is. So that's dictated by the local authority or by the approved housing body. So they don't have that option that, that some people have of kind of shopping around for yeah. a more reasonable alternative. They're, they're really tied down by what the local authority or the approved housing body has has chosen and kind of fundamentally linked to that is actually the poor standards of social housing that you know many of our clients are living in so really there's no proper insulation you know the houses aren't properly maintained and really that obviously will have a direct impact on the energy costs that that those those households are experiencing and even, you know, that's kind of widespread, I'm sure, across the country, but specifically in Dublin City Council, there, you know, the figures that were published in November of last year showed that there were hundreds of households, I think over 700 households that were waiting for the tech council to come out and actually fix, repair or replace yeah. their windows. So, I mean, that's hundreds of households in Dublin with leaky, drafty windows that just you know, will obviously really increase their energy costs and which I think will only increase further, you know, as we go into the winter months. Yeah, no, I was actually looking, there was a figure um, I came across um, a while ago there doing some work with uh, on Fianza and homelessness. And I was shocked that some of the figures in terms of that um, substandard housing conditions mm-hmm. in Ireland, um, and it was 16% of households in Ireland and then in terms of um, had kind of damp housing, which mm-hmm. was like, as you say, you know, leaking walls or the roof, dampness um, or with mold. And mm-hmm. then that almost a third of poor households were living with damp. And this was much higher than the EU average. And that almost one in three children um, living in poor households were growing up in, in housing, these poor housing conditions. And of course, the work that... Uh, Myself and others and part of the community law um, centers were doing a number of years ago. It's almost over 10 years ago now in Dolphin House and Dolphin's Barn highlighted the impact of mold and dampness mm-hmm. on the health of um, people living in the households and in particular on the children and the yeah. impacts then on education um, and in terms of higher levels of sickness that this is, you know, very serious. And as you say, that links directly to energy costs as well. And then people like are are people, you know, not using the heat? Are they not using electricity? Is that what what you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. And people are kind of, as Claude has said, some people are are really weighing up the option of either heating or eating. That's a real concern that people, you know, people are experiencing and people are facing. And really those figures, Rory, you know, they don't surprise me as to, you know, the substandard accommodation that, that many households are living in going to interrupt the podcast for a moment to ask for your support the tortoise shack is a independent podcast platform that relies on listeners and we don't have ads we don't have sponsors we simply have you um, if you get something from the podcast please give something back how we do that is the patreon model it's really easy it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack if you could click on the link it's in this podcast for you all you got to do is click on it see if there's a level you're comfortable with and then you chip in for that you get lots and lots and lots of additional content there's access to all of our podcasts in one place you don't have to listen to me ask for support they're plea free 
and uh, our entire back catalogue, over a thousand podcasts are sitting there ready for you now if you want to go back and listen to, say, our conversations with Lenny Abramson or Naomi Klein or literally over a thousand. They're all there now on one in a one-stop shop called patreon.com forward slash tortoise uh, No one likes having to rattle buckets and ask for support, but this is the only way we can keep this project going. If you are listening, if you're one of the thousands of people who are listening, maybe join the few people who chip in every month and help us keep going we appreciate every single cent thank you so much and enjoy the podcast you know they don't surprise me as to you know the substandard accommodation that that many households are living in and i think another kind of i suppose cohort that we're seeing this we're we're seeing this in through our clinics is actually the experience of irish travelers Mm. and really that the accommodation the standard of the accommodation that many irish travelers are living in is completely inhumane, completely in, inadequate. And that's actually, you know, highlighted, I suppose, by the figures that were released earlier this week, showing that I think only a third of local authority funding that was directly set aside for the provision of traveller specific accommodation has been drawn down so far this year. So really, you know, the money isn't being spent on providing appropriate, culturally appropriate accommodation or even, you know, maintaining the accommodation that's there to an appropriate standard. And even that's highlighted by a report, I think it was done in 2019 by um, the National Traveller Maps, which showed that 77% of traveller households are living in energy poverty. And that was back in 2019. So, I've no doubt, you know, as to the fact that that has probably increased and will increase in light of the ongoing housing crisis and the increasing cost of living. Yeah, and it is vulnerable groups, you know, mm-hmm. those who are already in disadvantage like travellers or, you know, um, in terms of, you know, low income households, people, for example, carers, those reliant on on welfare Um in terms of you know the other households we know you know migrants um mm-hmm. who are suffering this kind of you know poverty low income um and you know this is these groups are all alone parents of course as well being another yeah. group um disproportionately affected by by poverty and low income um and also um people unable to work due to sickness mm-hmm. and disability is another big um uh, a group who are disproportionately affected by by poverty, and these are the groups who now must be really, really suffering, as you've said, in terms of travellers. But in terms of this cost of living crisis and heating, and that directly links into that energy poverty, because the other issue is sometimes if you can't afford to heat housing, then situate problems of mold and thing like things like that get worse then as well. Absolutely, they're all completely interlinked. Claudia, I don't know if you've anything to add to that from the environmental justice side. I was just going to completely agree that the energy poverty crisis is very, very likely to widen health inequalities because we know that living in a cold home puts people at additional health risks and particularly puts the elderly and clinically vulnerable at risk of things like cardiovascular stress, developing asthma or causing asthma symptoms to be Mm. aggravated or worsen. And then obviously it impacts people's mental health hugely as well. Um, And, uh, group that are very, you know, impacted by the crisis at the moment are also people living in the private rental sector. So people in the private rental sector, um, those of us who are renting have fewer um, decisions in terms of investment and, uh, you know, legal decision making of the home. You can't decide 
to retrofit a rented home or to put solar panels on your roof when you're renting. Um, and, you know, when you are looking to lease a residence, you need to have what's called um, a building energy rating. So that's just the energy efficiency rating of a home. But more than half of private rented properties have an energy efficiency rating of D or less. And then 20% are rated F or G. So um, people and especially children living in the private rental sector are more exposed than to health risks. Yeah. And, and this, of course, is, is again accentuated by the housing crisis in that we have now, um, and I was looking at figures from the CSO, you know, a very high proportion between a fifth. And a third, I think, of children of school going age are now in, living in the private, growing up in the private rental sector and exposed to um, those substandard accommodation. And of course, a big issue relates to this that I've highlighted and been so frustrated that government made no requirement on landlords to um, upgrade their and retrofit their properties. Um, and it's not until I think 2025 that they will have an obligation but I, there's even a, an opt-out of that feasible or something like that that they will have and of course there'll be a major issue then as well and, and we're already seeing this idea of a concept of renovations where landlords are renovating properties um, and then obviously they they are saying they need to evict the tenant and they might do in some t places need the tenants might need to leave but then you know using that as an opportunity to get around the RPZ rules increase the rent offer that to the existing tenant. And of course, the existing tenant, there's no way they can afford it because it might be a substantial increase. And then essentially the tenants being evicted. Are you seeing situations like that here? Yeah, in our in our legal advice clinic that we run on, on a weekly basis, yeah, in, I run the the social housing one and the housing one generally yeah. in Dublin. And yeah, the number of clients that I'm seeing com coming into the clinic who have been illegally evicted for whatever reason, um, it's stark. I mean, I'm seeing probably two nearly a week on average yeah. and that's only the people that you know we can see we're, we're limited in terms of our resources so I've no doubt that the issue is more widespread than, than what we're seeing absolutely and that's kind of all linked I suppose into the ongoing housing crisis and why I suppose one of the reasons we're advocating for you know a, a right to housing to go into the Irish constitution but maybe we can address that down the line Rory unless there's something else you want to come yeah, in no, we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. I'm not sure, Claudia, did you want to come in there as well? Yeah, I was just going to say that at the moment, there isn't much legal certainty around um, tenants' rights if their home was to be renovated. Um, so um, my understanding of it is that a tenant is protected unless um, the renovation results in an increase in efficiency of something like five levels. So let's say if you go from... Um, an F standard of energy efficiency to an A standard. Yeah. Um, that the, the landlord might be able to either increase rent or put the house back on the market. So there needs to be much more certainty around that. And there also needs to just be enhanced tenancy protections generally. Um, so, um, because even at the moment, you know, um, people who are living in, um, energy for households and who are renting might not report these issues to their landlords if they're you know experiencing things like dampness or mold or broken windows they just mightn't tell the landlord because they, there might be fear of eviction or of an increase in rent um, or just that the release might not be renewed yeah um, so if we are going to kind of undertake 
uh, transition that kind of is looking to address the housing and climate crisis in tandem, tenants' rights need to be at the forefront of that and need to be really strongly protected. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And in terms of that, Mary, in relation to social housing, again, you know, we know that the social housing targets around um, retrofitting are, are very low. Um, that what do you see? How do you see this kind of developing if we don't have a wider um, or maybe because I, I think uh, you're saying there in terms of retrofitting, like retrofitting is really the, the solution or well, not the solution, but a key intervention um, that could help this in social housing. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of, I think the the impact on social housing would be the, the similar the impact that could have on the private rental sector. Yeah. Um, it's not actually something that I've kind of considered in my line of work. I know Cloda is the the retrofit expert in in CLM, so I don't know, Cloda, is that something that you've looked at from a social housing perspective? Yeah, well, in terms of um, our retrofitting recommendations, you know, um, the government's national retrofit plan at the moment um, plans to retrofit about a fifth of the social housing stock this decade. That's right, um, yeah. So for all of our talk of a just transition, I mean, really, um, if we're going to put the most affected um, members of our community first, our entire social housing stock should be retrofitted this decade. And that's something that the government can directly do, like the social housing stock belongs to local authorities and the state. So that's something that we would recommend. Um, and we'd also recommend, um, this is based on a report that Threshold and St. Vincent de Paul published last year, that um, something like the warmer home scheme should be provided to um, HAP recipients so that people who are um, living in the private rental sector and who are reliant on HAP should be able to um, access retrofitting dependent on, um, you know, security of tenure going forward that the landlord won't be able to um, evict those tenants once that retrofit is in place. There's a really excellent report that was recently published by Claire O'Connor of Friends of the Earth Ireland on barriers to retrofit, um, which I'd really recommend um, people take a look at if you're interested in barriers yeah. to yeah. Yeah. No. No. Because it, it is again, you know, a key one, and and again, in terms of inequality and and within the transition, um, you know, like when we look look forward now, and in terms of energy costs, it's even more acute, and the cost of living crisis means that, on the one hand, you have owners, you know, who own their home, um, and I don't know whether you come across much of this as well, that there are also homeowners who are in, you know have no financial uh, ability to invest anything in retrofitting and so they will be left behind and then you will have these those in social housing who aren't part of government um schemes left behind and then those private renters effectively again where the landlord decides not to left behind so this huge gap growing between not only will the people who can afford it have a warmer home but they have cheaper electricity as well and those who who can't are left you know, facing this ongoing, um, you know, problems of, as you said, mold, damp, health impacts, mental health impacts, plus a higher cost of living as well. Yeah, exactly. And um, as you say, there's also like there are really significant gaps even for homeowners in terms of what they're able to afford or even in terms of people understanding what options are available to them. Um, so another recommendation that we would have um, is you know, to roll out community energy advisors through the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, and they could be deployed through 
you know, every local authority um, across the, across the country to just increase awareness of the different schemes that are currently available um, and to reach, especially hard to reach um, energy users. Um, but yeah, there, there just kind of needs to be a more holistic approach, I think, to retrofit because it isn't really going, it isn't likely to be solved by market-led initiatives. Um, and there's a couple of positive examples where other countries have gotten it right, I think. Um, so in Italy, for example, Italy have decided to pay homeowners 110% of the costs of retrofitting their home um, or of just eco-proofing their home. So if a person decides to buy um, a heat pump um, or to retrofit, Italians will receive a 100% refund on the yeah. principal that because the government understood that, you know, people aren't going to adopt their homes um, without it. And they also didn't think that a power payment would be taken up on the scale of change that's actually required. Um, so the takeoff for the scheme in Italy has been huge and it's also created jobs in the building sector. And then in Cyprus as well, there is an interesting initiative um, where they sought to tackle energy poverty in households with disabled people. So people with disabilities often have higher energy needs. Mm. Um, and that isn't really accounted for in how we collect data on energy poverty in Ireland at the moment. We look at it just in terms of what proportion of people's income is spent on energy. So it doesn't take into account how people have different energy needs. So Cyprus kind of took this integrated approach where they look to subsidize the implementation of energy renovations like thermal insulation. Um, so, yeah, just having more appropriate and targeted financial support mechanisms. And that has really helped Cyprus, um, you know, going towards a kind of longer term a sustainable and um, active alleviation of energy poverty um, amongst people with disabilities. Yeah, no, I think it's it's the clear that you need you know not not only under ten percent grants, but even well, you need grants, but also loans as well, or, or not even loans, but actually just paying for it straight up because people yeah. don't have the money even to pay for it to get it back. Yeah, um, and I think that's definitely something that needs to be done. And of course, the arguments economically around this are that, oh, you know, how could the government afford this? And but they, when we look at all the costs we have looked at there, like, you know, you look at the health costs in particular on that currently we have to pay um, because of poor housing and also then the poverty and the need for subsidizing and supporting people in that, that the economic benefits outweigh not spending the money. It is an investment. Um, and a positive uh, investment in the future and in people's lives. So it is a no-brainer in that sense. Um, but of course, we're limited uh, by the government's uh, self-imposed limitation on budget, uh, budgetary approaches. Um, on the, the other question I had, I just wanted to come back to you before I go to Mary on the right to housing. Um, I want to include it just that you, you said there in terms of nationalizing energy companies, and I would completely agree with that. Um, but if you said that on, on radio, you'd be laughed at and uh, maybe, maybe not now. Maybe it is something that is been starting to be taken serious again. But before, definitely that, that idea, um, was something that, you know, was considered, you know, a relic of, of, you know, maybe socialism of the past or something. Whereas, now, when we look at, in particular, the development of renewable energy, um, and we're seeing you know lots of private companies developing renewable energy, offshore wind, and profiting from it, uh, when this, of course, is our own natural resource that we should be using to subsidize 
um, particularly those on low incomes, energy generation. Have you done any work in terms of proposals on that or th- thinking about how that might happen or why that should happen or not why, but uh, yeah, just that question of nationalizing energy companies. Well, I suppose in context of where we are now, I think it makes sense for us to have this debate because, you know, at the moment, um, when we're creating energy as um, kind of an asset and as a good that is being developed towards profit, we're not thinking about it in terms of public good or social and ecological value. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, um, fossil fuels are the primary contributor to the climate crisis. Renewables aren't being developed at the scale that's required. And also we aren't looking at energy efficiency because it's not profitable to think about energy efficiency. Yeah. Um, but these are really important questions that we need to be talking about because we are now at a point where the government is discussing whether we might be facing into blackouts this winter because there's such a shortage of gas. Um, we, you know, a uh, data centers currently account for um, 14% of electricity use in Ireland, where that actually outweighs the entire demand of all of rural Ireland, which accounts for 12% only uh, collectively. Yeah. So there's a need to kind of look at um, what we are developing energy for and who. So it's not only a question of kind of moving away from fossil fuels, but it's looking at how is our energy system working as a whole? Is it working? And, um, you know, can we actually make sure that um, that we're kind of addressing this in the most sensible way that we can? And so, yeah, we, we're just kind of saying that the government should consider this and should open it up to public debate because um, it is something that other countries are doing. For example, France has recently nationalized their energy system. Um, and it would allow us to kind of take stock of the, you know, the recognition that energy is a right. And not only is energy a right, but it's also a precondition to um, the realization of so many other rights. Yeah. Well, sorry, I should say it should be considered as a right, um, you know, rather than um, an asset. But like, you know, access to adequate levels of energy is so important for um, how we live our lives. And um, it's even, you know, obviously our health, as we discussed. But it's even becoming increasingly connected to employment opportunities. A lot of offices now are adopting a remote or a hybrid approach. Um, so of we course, really do, yeah. Yes, we, we do need to kind of think about um, a rights-based approach to energy. Um, so, yeah, it's something that we think should be just opened up to public debate. Um, and if people are interested in learning more, Sinead Mercier has a really good paper called um, The Historical Case for Hope in Climate Action, which is really good in looking at why energy should be nationalised in Ireland. No, I think it's a really, really important one to raise and, and something absolutely we need to discuss. And, and as I said, in particular, as we're now generating, developing, um, uh, where I come from originally in Tremor, um, offshore, they're developing a number of offshore um, they're currently scoping, doing scoping, and you can see the ships off the sea. And um, one of my family members was showing me a map that has, is there and that has been developed for the consultations around it. And it's incredible looking at the map and how the sea, the offshore is divided up between five different companies. And I think at least four of them are private. Um, and of course, it's not like the state is contracting these to develop the the infrastructure and then, you know, it to become public and operated publicly. It is um, the state is essentially giving them a license to 
um, develop this and then profit from it. That they will, and the argument being that the state doesn't have the money to, you know, invest in the infrastructure, and this is a cheaper way. It's these, you know, the same public-private partnership approaches that they've developed in housing. Um, this idea that we need private developers to build social housing, and of course, you know, it, it's. I think it's it's you know it's just illogical on on the reasons that you've set out there. Exactly. And you make such a good point because it's not as though we have an infinite um, level of renewable energy. You know, we have we have very enviable renewable energy potential, I should say, and we should absolutely um, tap into that. But um, it's not infinite. And we yeah. do need to look at um, what we actually need energy for and who we need energy for, because at the moment, you know, it does seem as though energy is being prioritized to meet the needs of the industrial and commercial sectors and um, like data centers, for instance. Mm. And that's just not really sensible when we have a third of the population living in energy poverty. So we do need to kind of take all of these factors into consideration. Yeah, yeah. No, that's so true. So true. And I really hope that uh, and I think, you know, we will need to be having this conversation much wider and getting more traction on these ideas. Mary, just to come to you. um in terms of uh, finishing, it's been really interesting. The, the question of human rights, then, the right to housing, environmental justice, maybe you could explain a little bit about your, your approach and um, kind of work you've done on this and what you think needs to happen. Yeah, so this is all coming kind of to a head at the moment with the ongoing public consultation on the referendum, on referendum on housing. And at the moment, CLM is we're preparing our submission and what we're calling for is for an express and explicit right to housing to be inserted into the Irish constitution. And that's, you know, along with many other organisations, I know yourself, Rory, is part of the Home for Good, are, are also calling for that. Yeah. And really, from CLM's perspective, that's really informed by what we're seeing on the ground. So really, you know, everyone in Ireland is affected by in some shape or form by the housing crisis. But what we're seeing is that the vulnerable communities, those who are socially excluded, living in poverty, those are the communities that are really acutely feeling this the housing crisis. And, you know, in terms of figures, I mean, we saw a 40 percent increase in the number of housing queries that we saw um, that we were seeing, sorry, in our clinics over the COVID-19 period. Yeah. And that figure, it's still up there. It, it hasn't come down. And even, you know, of those clients that we're seeing, one in 10 are at risk on average of, of being made homeless. Yeah. So, I mean, people are living in really uncertain and really difficult circumstances. And even if we kind of take a step back and look at the nature of the queries that we're seeing, they're really of an acute and, you know, an emergency kind of nature. I mean, we've had countless clients come into us who have been refused emergency accommodation for whatever reason. We have people who are living in emergency accommodation for, for years in completely substandard, you know, levels of accommodation, not at all suitable for their needs. And also kind of what we mentioned earlier on that, you know, broadly what we're seeing is the level of the standard, I suppose, sorry, of accommodation is completely inadequate. And, you know, taking those trends into consideration, you know, we're really seeing that the marginalised communities in Ireland are really acutely feeling, feeling the effects of the housing crisis. And, you know, in terms of how we need to go about addressing that, there needs to be a fundamental shift in Ireland as to how we view housing. Yeah, And that is what we're advocating for is 
for a rights-based approach to be taken to housing, an acknowledgement that housing, it's a fundamental basic human right, which goes towards the vindication of many other rights, like Claudia mentioned. But we need to move away, I suppose, from housing being viewed as an asset, as a commodity, like it is a basic human right. And really the first step, I suppose, in, you know, reshaping our housing policy going forward, it is the recognition of this right uh, in our, our constitution. And that's why we're advocating for, you know, a right to housing to be put into, to be put to the people, I suppose, um, in a referendum and to be inserted into, into the constitution. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what, why we're calling for it. Yeah. And I think it's kind of probably important at this juncture to really, to kind of consider what a right to housing would do and what it wouldn't do. So I think there might be kind of, this perception that if we were to put a right to housing into the constitution, that that would guarantee everyone, you know, a right, a house, I suppose, in the country and the state would have to build a house for everyone and anyone could rock up to the courts and demand that, you know, the state provide them with a house. That's not what a right to housing would do. And it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to fix our housing crisis. Mm. But what it will do is it'll provide you know, a recognition that housing is a fundamental human right, but it would also provide, I suppose, a, a standard to which, you know, the state and local authorities will have to, I suppose, provide housing, you know, to that standard, but also have regard to the fact that this is a basic human right and going forward in terms of the adoption of their policies, measures, introduction, in, introduction, sorry, of, you know, statutory, you know, statutory frameworks, they would have to have regard to the fact that, that housing is a basic human right and that the right to housing needs to be vindicated in any of its policies, its measures or its statutory framework. Um, so that's the power that the right to housing can have. Um, and it, it really will, I, I think it could fundamentally shift how and reshape how we view housing in this country. And even from a legal practitioner's perspective, it's very difficult at the moment to actually, you know, in the absence of a clear and direct substantive right to point to, it's actually very difficult sometimes for us to advocate for our clients who are in these very difficult circumstances. So we can point to, you know, ancillary rights like, you know, right to fair procedure, privacy rights, potential rights of children, if, if your children are involved. But actually, in the absence of a clear and direct constitutional right that we can point to when we're advocating for our clients, it's actually, it can be very difficult to hold hold local authorities and hold the state to account. So really on that level as well, having a constitutional right to housing could be very, very impactful. Yeah, I think you've set it out very well and I completely agree with, with all of that um, in terms of what a right to housing could achieve. And I think that's important because the starting point is that the Housing Commission currently is calling for a consultation on a mm. referendum on housing. And mm. it's not on a referendum yeah. on a right to housing, that there's Absolutely. no guarantee. And I think, you know, people need to understand this, that there's no other guarantee at all that they are going to recommend to government that there is an insertion of a right to housing um, in the constitution and holding a referendum to do that, that they could just as easily recommend yeah. some bland, you know, something on land that, you know, would have marginal impact. Um, and, um, 
you know, might not. And even their wording in relation to the right to housing, if they were suggesting it, it could be very weak. And I think there is a real need for the public to make their um, voice heard on this and to make a submission to the Housing Commission, which they can do up until um, February the 2nd, and they can go on to the Housing Commission's website. It's very straightforward to, to make a submission on that. Um, but I think as well, it is important that the content of that um, referendum is about that very clear obligation mm -hmm. on the state. And I think it would mean a very significant change in our state and government and its responsibility in housing. And of course, the question that comes to me is, why would they allow that happen? <laughs> why would they yeah. allow that go through if it will mean such a big obligation on them? What do you think? Yeah, and that's something I think that we are considering internally here. Um, but I think, you know, that it really, I suppose that is a question as to why would they, but, you know, there's a real need for them to do this because it is, fundamentally affecting everyone in this country and it's really it, it's a basic core human right and I suppose in terms of the wording that would actually go into the constitution that's something that CLM is just considering at the moment but what we would like to see in in that wording is that there is this core minimum obligation on the state to provide for a right to shelter for people so fundamentally that's a kind of a base core you know, level of protection that needs to be included in any right to housing. But in terms of, you know, the obligation on the state, I mean, the wording, no doubt, I suppose, will probably be limited in terms of, you know, limited to the resources that are available to the state, yeah. as are most socioeconomic rights that are already in the constitution. So that would provide maybe some limited comfort to, to the state. But I think at this point, you know, the housing crisis has been going on for years. It's time for fundamental and urgent reform of it and, and to, to reshape how we're thinking about it. So I think really there's a real desire among the general population for the state to shift its approach and to reshape and rethink how it's viewing housing and putting in that constitutional right which will be in our, in our constitution going forward, and it will be there no matter what government is in, is in in power. That will be really, really impactful. Um, so I'd be hopeful that, like you said, I suppose, Rory, actually, there isn't even a guarantee that a right to housing will actually be recommended by the Housing Commission. Mm. But I'd be hopeful that that you know that will be what will be recommended to the mm. government. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I do too. And again, I think, as I said. Uh, to encourage listeners to just yeah. go on to the, the, they can go on to the Home for Good, um, which is a coalition that I'm part of. And there's a webinar later today, which uh, we'll also be putting out as a podcast. Um, mm -hmm. and people have until February the 2nd. And even if they just take a few minutes to go, um, online, they could submit it. There's a form on the Housing Commission's website. Um, this is Claude Daly and Mary Heavey from the Community Law and Mediation Center. It was really great to have you on and it's fantastic work that you're doing. Um, and if people want to contact you in relation to if they have or know of people who need um, legal advice in relation to housing or other issues of, of um, I suppose, broader environmental justice um, issues in relation to, I know you do support welfare and other um, aspects, um, giving legal advice and it is free um, mm -hmm. and available, how can they contact you? Yeah, you can get in touch through our email. So it's info at communitylawandmediation.ie. Um, we're also on all the different social media channels. Um, so you can people can find us there too. Um, and yeah, we run weekly 
pre-legal advice clinics um, and then on the environmental justice ones, they're monthly for the moment and will hopefully become more regular in the future. Great. And that's in Kulak and Limerick? That's in Kulak and Limerick, but we also can provide the clinics online too, so people can phone in from anywhere. Okay, great, great. Well, listen, best luck in all the work and hopefully uh, I definitely will be talking to you again um, as we continue to highlight these issues. Thanks so much for joining me on Reboot Republic today. Thanks, Amory. And uh, Cloda and Mary, they're um, really interesting and important um, stuff. And as always, uh, we encourage you listeners, thank you to those who are um, sharing the podcast around on social media. It really helps in terms of people hearing it and the ideas. And we really appreciate you doing that. We've had some great um, interaction and engagement and um, listenership is continuing to grow. And we really appreciate all of you who are taking the time to listen. Um, and also, of course, to our patrons, to those who support us. We are an independent podcast, completely reliant on our listeners to fund uh, the cost of production. The podcast would not exist without our patron supporters. Thank you to those who are patrons. And if you're not, please consider you can go over to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack and sign up for um, whatever you can. There's different levels from a few euro to more um, and you get the podcast first into your email when they are um, made and before they go out in general release. So you get that and you get to hear lots of other podcasts as well. So if you can, please consider becoming a patron. Thank you so much um, and we'll talk to you all very soon.